This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Thanks for tuning in. We are on Lesson 4 in our series, The People of God. And today we're thinking about Christ and how He is the key to becoming one of the people of God. And so as we've discussed thus far in our series, God's purpose in creating man demanded free moral agency on man's part, and God expects a response from each individual human to his will and to his love in order to be acceptable to him. And God knew from the beginning that we would sin and that we would fall short. And so God had an eternal purpose to redeem us. And Paul speaks about this in various places, Ephesians 3.11, uh, 2 Timothy 1 is another another place in verse 8 where Paul says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity and now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so Paul says many similar things along those lines uh, in, in other epistles about the eternal purpose of God for man's redemption through his Son and bringing his Son into the world to, to be that sacrifice, that guilt offering for us, where we could have access to God's grace and mercy and forgiveness of sin. So the Son of God would sacrifice Himself on behalf of all mankind for all time as as a as a perfect sinless sacrifice, the sinless one dying for for sinners. Now, Paul put it this way in Romans three twenty three for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God passed over the sins that were previously committed. And so there again, redemption is found in Christ Jesus, and this is a need for all men, because all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And when we look to the Old Testament, we see uh, many types of uh, scenarios and and accounts that play out that, that prefigure God's plan to ultimately redeem man and the sacrifices that were required uh, of his people and even before the law of Moses. So you go back to Genesis chapter 4 and you can see uh, Cain and versus Abel's sacrifice and how Abel's was offered in faith and was acceptable because it was a, it was according to God's will and it was an animal sacrifice. He brought the best of his flock. And then later, Noah was required to take 14 clean beasts and birds into the ark in Genesis chapter 7. And then after the flood in Genesis chapter 8, he would sacrifice those those animals. And then Abraham, another patriarch, uh, also built altars to the Lord in Genesis chapter 12 and called on the name of the Lord. And so did the other patriarchs in Israel. And so we see this pattern from the beginning uh, that even when Judaism is established as the religion of the Israelites in the time of the patriarchs is, is over, God still gives them many specific commands regarding blood offerings or blood sacrifices. And the only rationale, so far as I can see, given in Scripture as as to why it was 
these blood offerings that were necessary is found in Leviticus 17 and verse 11, where uh, God says that the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Uh, The American Standard Version and New American Standard Bible say that it is uh, given to make atonement by reason of the life. And so far as I can tell, that is the, that is the meaning of of the text. So it wasn't it wasn't the blood per se. It wasn't like the the plasma and the hemoglobin and all the physical things that make up physical blood per se that God um, wanted, even or that was pointing forward to His plan and sending His Son to redeem us. But it was the sacrifice of a life. It was the giving of uh, of a life on behalf of the sacrificer or the, or the one who was offering the sacrifice. John the Baptist says of Jesus in John 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when we read the Gospels, we, we see and we can understand that Christ gave his life. He He poured out his blood, but, it, but it, the significance of his sacrifice was that he gave his life so that sinners might be forgiven and might have the hope of immortality as paul describes where we read in second timothy one that jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel and the giving of him and the giving of himself and the sacrificing of himself the hebrew writer says that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins there is no forgiveness and he says so it was necessary for the copies of the things that are in the heavens to be purified with these, as he's talking about the old tabernacle system, the old, the old covenant. And he said, but the heavenly things themselves needed better sacrifices. They had to be cleansed with better sacrifices than these. And then he says, Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. In Hebrews 9.22. And now he says, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself in verse 26. So that whole system, you know, the the sacrifices of the patriarchs and the whole tabernacle system under Moses with all those animal sacrifices and all that blood that was poured out, the Hebrew writer saying that was just, all those things were just pointing forward to the perfect and ultimate sacrifice that God would, would give in his son that God would make in the giving of his son on our behalf so that he could put away sin for all time by sacrificing himself. And so prior to Jesus's coming, those offerings, again, were just types and shadows of Christ. And, but they were still the Jews only hope for becoming one of God's people in, in the true moral sense. It was, you know, the sacrifices that they made pertained directly to the atonement for sin as Leviticus reveals that this these were given to make atonement for your souls and and they needed that because and and we still need that in Christ because sin is what separates man from God Isaiah 59 and verse 2 so Isaiah also prophesied of of Jesus's sacrifice in chapter 53 uh, as he describes Jesus being wounded for our transgressions being bruised for our iniquities in verse 5 and really verses 1 through 12 as he describes Jesus' sacrifice on behalf of, of of all mankind. And the Hebrew writer, too, makes it clear that the types of Christ 
that is those sacrifices that foreshadowed him, they also needed his actual sacrifice to give them substance. Right, the the blood of bulls and goats, the Hebrew writer says, was insufficient, and they could never make the worshiper. Um, they could never cleanse the conscience of of the worshiper. So Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, is the key and is the only means by which sinful people may become the people of God. And all those sacrifices of the Old Testament were foreshadowing Him, and and those people, at least to some degree, we can read understood that. Um, their sacrifices, and the whole temple system was insufficient. And God had something better planned. And so when we look into that system further, we can see more times, besides just the sacrifices, we can see more foreshadowings uh, of of Jesus Christ in that system, like the priesthood, for example, which acted as as a mediator between God and man. They They served at the altar, in the holy place of the people, and the high priest um, was the only person who could enter the most holy place in the tabernacle or the temple and approach the mercy seat and, and offer the blood uh, or the life for the sins of the people. And in this in this kind of system uh, pertaining to the priest as a as a mediator, again, it was never intended uh, to be this way for all time. And we look into the new covenant, we can see that Jesus Christ is now high priest in Hebrews chapter 7 after the order of Melchizedek. So he, meaning he's both a king and a priest. He serves in both of those roles. And as we read earlier, he entered heaven to appear in the presence of God on our behalf in chapter 9. And so he has become the fulfillment of those shadows in the Old Testament of the priesthood, of the, of the, king, of the kings um, in ancient Israel. And he is, he is the one mediator now and all of his people are priests paul wrote in first timothy 2 and verse 5 that there is one god and one mediator between god and men the man christ jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time and so you know often in our religious world today we see a a clergy laity kind of distinction it's very common in many churches Uh, but it was denied, that kind of distinction was denied long ago when Christ spoke of religious hierarchy. He had things to say. He said, I don't want you to call. He says, don't be called rabbi, uh, for you have one teacher, that is Christ, and you are all brethren. Right. So he puts himself on one plane, and then he has everybody else on another plane. And then again, he says in Matthew 23, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he is who is in heaven. And so Jesus is saying you can't call your dad your dad, right? But in the context, he's talking about religious uh, labels, right? And he's he's limiting those. And he is saying that in this new system under him, that those are not going to be appropriate. And he was speaking to the multitude. He was speaking to all his disciples, many of whom later became apostles when he said these things. And so uh, even those men who served those kinds of functions that we read of in the New Testament, we just see them as these, you know, monolith figures who did so much. They they were brethren. They were all on the same plane. There wasn't a religious hierarchy, right? And we can read First Corinthians twelve and First Corinthians three, and we can see what those men said about themselves. How they were just servants. They said just like the rest of their brethren, and they had a peculiar function and a pe- peculiar role within the New Testament church and the early church. Uh, but they were not. 
uh, greater. Uh, they weren't on higher up on the, the spiritual ladder uh, because of that particular role that God assigned to them. And so Jesus reveals the, the true hierarchy um, that Christ himself is at the top. And he says, you are all brethren. And that includes apostles and prophets, elders, deacons, preachers, and members. All of those individuals are on the same level below Christ. Now, again, they have different functions, but none are like Christ. The sacrifice and king and priest who was given for us to forgive our sins and and be an intercessor for us. And so respecting the priesthood, the New Testament people of God are called a holy priesthood. And that's everybody. Everybody is included in that who has submitted to Christ on his terms. He calls in 1 Peter 2 verses 5 and in verse 9, they're called a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood who are set apart to proclaim the excellencies of of God. And we're to conform to our high priest, our, our, our perfect example and pattern, Jesus Christ, who is also our king. And as priests, Christians are to present their bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to God, as Paul says in Romans 12. And we're to continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. He, the Hebrew writer says that's the fruit of your lips, giving thanks to his name in Hebrews 13, 15. So the, the point is, is that each individual Christian has direct access through Christ to the throne of God and his mercies and serves as a priest in that capacity and serves as uh, on, on the same plane as every other every other Christian. And we all have, the, all Christians have the privilege to come boldly to the throne of grace. And they should, we should confess our sins and pray for one another, James 5, 16, for mutual encouragement. But Peter told Simon, who sinned following his baptism, to repent, therefore, of your wickedness and pray, pray God that perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you in Acts 8, 22. So there, there's an example of, that's a Christian who was indicted for his sin, and Peter's saying, you go directly to God through Jesus Christ, and you ask for forgiveness. And so it is a reverence for any man on earth to claim to be the vicar of Christ or in place of Jesus Christ, who puts himself as another mediator between man and God. Uh, when Scripture is saying, no, that there's only one of those individuals, and that is Jesus Christ himself one mediator between God and man. So let's consider some scriptures used by uh, those in the religious world who would say, no, you need another mediator, you need another uh, substitute, or there is a hierarchy or something like this. So uh, some of the passages that they will use um, can be found throughout the Gospels. Uh, For example, following Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to his disciples who would soon be called apostles, and he said to them, this is John 20, 21 through 23, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And so this is a lot of times coupled with a text in Matthew 16 and verse 19, where Jesus told Peter, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And as and to Matthew eighteen, eighteen, where he told all the disciples, again soon to be apostles, the same thing. And when we look at the language itself, uh, and 
you'll have to investigate further on your own and look at language experts and what they say. Um, men who don't have an axe to grind, but they're simply putting forth the um, the grammar of the original text. Uh, they'll they'll show you that um, what Jesus is speaking in, or at least what his, the New Testament writers are writing Jesus's words in, is the Greek perfect tense in John twenty. And so, you know, John twenty the the passage translates the expression "they are forgiven" as "have been forgiven," and they are retained as "have been retained." And so further, the will uh, of Matthew that that's mentioned there, mentioned in those passages is literally those things shall have been bound or loosed in heaven already. Um, Marshall's translation, as well as Wilbur Thomas Dayton's translation um, of, of the text, again, is is that perfect sense of what you are going to preach is already been bound in heaven. It's already been loosed in heaven. So in other words, it's not that the message um, and authority originated with the apostles, but it was given to them and they were inspired men and they were just revealing things that had already been um, decided by, by God. So these passages are saying that by the time the apostles proclaimed the remission of sins in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost uh, through Jesus Christ, that God's plan will have been bound in heaven already, and it has been bound for for all time. They're just all they're doing is just delivering the message that originated with God. And so, you know, do some further investigation for yourself personally. Look at the language and how it, how it's used. But those are texts that are often misused, I believe, to justify uh, a man having authority in himself or serving as some sort of uh, vicar or uh, some who holds a place higher up on, on an imagined hierarchy of other Christians and saying, I have the authority to bind this or bind that when that's not even what the apostles were given, right? They were, they were delegated authority that had already been uh, to, to bind and loose things. That is, that had already been decided by God. So it wasn't, they were just deciding themselves. They weren't making it up as they went along. And you look again at that passage in John when Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit, well, that can't mean that the apostles received at that specific time the Spirit that would guide them into all truth that Jesus promised earlier in, in John 16. Uh, and they weren't even sent out then at that time in John 20 because Jesus had already promised that the Spirit was going to come upon them after his ascension, after they were waiting in, in Jerusalem, as the Gospel of Luke describes in Luke 24. 47 through 49. So all of this points to whether we're talking about the grammar, grammar or grammatical construction or just harmonizing the Gospels of, of Matthew, Luke, and John, and, and, and Mark, of course, what, what it all adds up to is we, we can't understand these men to be saying that their message, and Jesus to be saying that the message that they would preach and the result of that message, the forgiveness of sins, would originate with the apostles and and certainly not with supposed successors to the the apostles these inspired men uh, set forth a message of salvation in Christ and later those who came to Christ would would further preach the, the same message but neither the apostles nor the people they converted to Christ have the power to forgive sins Right, that is a power reserved for God and used by Christ 
to prove his deity while he was on earth in places like Matthew chapter 9. So God, the gospel truth originated in heaven. It was delivered to the apostles. They were led into all truth, which they presented to the world and converted many people and are still converting many people. Uh, but they did not have authority in and of themselves to legislate. And, and that's a key distinction we need to understand. And that teaching, that false doctrine is bound up a lot of times with another misconception of hierarchy within within God's church and within his kingdom. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 1, even if we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel, preach any other gospel than the one that we have preached to you, let him be accursed in Galatians 1 and verse 8. All right, so that that speaks to the finality of the message that Paul and the other apostles preach, right? He's even he's even including himself in this um, in, in these categories of, of people, teachers who are to be rejected if their message differs from what was originally preached. Right? He says, even if we, even if I come back later and what I'm telling you is different than what I preached to you before, that's the confidence he had in the message and the validity of the message and the finality of the message that he preached to begin with. Right? Even he himself as an apostle didn't have the authority to contradict what he had previously said. Right? And that should ring loudly in our ears. And so sacerdotal type systems which place authority in men or in a, or in a priesthood or in a, a college or in another church or something like this, that is anti-biblical. That distracts, detracts rather from the sovereign rule of Christ and the importance of his word. He is to where we are to look. The word that was preached by the apostles, that is where we are we are to look. The word that was to conf- that was confirmed to us by God, Hebrews two verses one through four. Now we're often told that the church has a a visible uh, or is a is a hierarchical society made up of subjects and superiors who uh, rule over others and who have some authority from the scriptures. But that is just not the biblical pattern. And some will go so far as to say that the Bible itself is the product of the church and not the other way around as we can read of in the scriptures. No, the Bible is not the product of the church. The Bible is breathed out by God, Second Timothy three sixteen and 17. And the church is the product of the Bible. The, the individuals who submit to the Bible's terms, God's terms for being one of his people, they're the result of God's doing and revealing himself in Christ. So Christ, just before his ascension, said that all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, and, and Paul said that Christ would reign until the end of time in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. So the written words of inspired men setting forth God's will, the king's will for posterity, all of their words and all of their letters that they were inspired to give were certainly gathered together and, and put together into our Bibles after the church came into existence. But the point is, is that the truth that they wrote down and that was gathered later didn't originate with them. It originated in heaven. And they were the inspired men who proclaimed them to the world as the means of bringing Christ's church into existence. Christ rules right now through his word and respect for and obedience to his word 
is our way of allowing him to rule in our lives. That's the only way. Right? Jesus says in John 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That was his prayer. And those words still hold true today. If I want to be one of his people, if I want to be sanctified, called out of the world, be a member of his body, of his church, it is through the word. It is through my submission to what he has revealed. And so I need to make a serious and objective examination of the scriptures to determine just what was established on the on that Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And where do I stand in relation to that? Have I done what's necessary and am I doing what is necessary to be one of God's people? Or have I been duped by the religiosity of the world? Thanks for your attention today and I hope that you continue to study these things and pray about them. Please let me know if you have any questions or thoughts or comments uh, by writing to Leon Valley Church at gmail.com or you can visit our website at leonvalleychurch.org. Find more information there and a contact form to submit if that's your desire. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.